We read about the martyrs for Christ in Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer, until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren, who would be killed as they were, was completed. Welcome to Souls Under the Altar, a program that reviews the stories of God's persecuted from the past and the present. Your host for this program is Etienne McClintock. The brothers Matthew and James were both called by Jesus to be part of his inner circle of 12 disciples. Although these brothers were not as well known as the other apostles, they were amongst the special group of student disciples that supported Jesus during his three and a half years of ministry. Both of them worked as missionaries and were finally martyred for their faith. Among the twelve there were three sets of brothers chosen by Jesus. The other two sets of brothers were Peter and Andrew, the sons of John, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Today's program focuses on the two lesser-known apostles, Matthew and James, the sons of Alphaeus. Matthew is also known by the name of Levi, which is a well-known Jewish name. This name aptly demonstrates Matthew's Jewish heritage. Now, for a Jewish man, a career as a tax collector would have placed him among the despised in Capernaum and no doubt would have brought shame to his Jewish family. Of the Roman officials in Palestine, none were more hated than the publicans. The fact that the taxes were imposed by a foreign power was a continual irritation to the Jews. This was a constant reminder that their national independence had been taken away. And to add insult to injury, the tax collectors were not merely the instruments of Roman oppression. These tax collectors were extortioners in their own right. They fraudulently enriched themselves at the expense of their own people. A Jew accepted an appointment to the office of a tax collector by the authority of the Romans was looked upon as betraying the honor of his nation. He was despised and was considered an apostate of the highest order. As far as they were concerned, a Jewish tax collector had fallen from grace and had betrayed God and country. These tax collectors were classed with the vilest of society. And to this despised class of public servant, Levi Matthew belonged. Anyone who was concerned with their reputation would have had nothing to do with such a low life. It would have been unthinkable that any business or organization would even dare to have one of such a character or reputation join their organization. However, Matthew, the despised tax collector, was the next disciple to be called by Jesus after the initial four who were called at Gennesaret. Society, and especially the Pharisees, had judged Matthew according to his employment. But Jesus saw in this man a heart open for the reception of truth. Matthew had listened to the Savior's teachings, and as the convicting Spirit of God revealed his sinfulness, he longed to be set free from his burden of guilt and to seek help from Jesus. But he was well aware of the way the other religious leaders looked on him. His mind had been conditioned by the exclusiveness of the rabbis 
and he did not think that he had any right to approach Jesus. That he would receive a glancing notice from this great teacher did not even enter his mind. But Jesus saw something else in Matthew. And one day as he was sitting at his toll booth collecting taxes, the publican saw Jesus approaching along the main thoroughfare in Capernaum. Great was his astonishment when Jesus spoke to him. He had been noticed by this great teacher. He could hardly believe his ears when he heard the words addressed to him, Follow me. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, the Bible simply says, He arose and followed him. So Matthew left all, rose up, and followed him. There was no hesitation, no questioning, no thought of the lucrative business to be swapped for poverty and hardship. It was enough for him that he was able to be with Jesus. That Jesus noticed him, spoke to him, and then called him to join his group was beyond his understanding. But as a follower of Jesus, he could continue to listen to his words and learn from him. He was given what he thought was a rare privilege and honor to unite with this great teacher in his work. Matthew's decision to follow Jesus was very similar to the decisions made by the four disciples who were called prior to him. When Jesus asked Peter and his companions to follow him, they also immediately left their boats and nets. Now when we consider their responsibilities to their family and that these disciples had friends who depended on them for support, we can see that this was not an inconsequential decision. But in spite of all this, when they received the Savior's invitation, they did not hesitate for a moment. They could have inquired, How shall I live and sustain my family? But there was power in the invitation, and they were convinced that this was the right thing to do. Just like Matthew, they left their old occupations behind and were obedient to the call. When Jesus at a later time asked them in Luke chapter 22 and verse 35, When I sent you without a money bag, a knapsack and shoes, did you lack for anything? They could answer, nothing. In the call of Jesus, these men were tested in the same way. Matthew was wealthy. Andrew and Peter were quite poor. But the same consecration was made by all of them. For the fishermen... Andrew and Peter, at the very moment of their great success, when their nets were filled with fish and the impulse of the old life and of future prosperity was the strongest, Jesus asked them to leave all of that for the work of the gospel. And so the test will come to you and me also. When you hear the call of God, will you perceive your priorities for making a living or perhaps the allurement of worldly success to be stronger? Or will you desire for an intimate relationship with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords to win the day? Principles are always demanding, and right principles should govern our decisions and actions. No one can be successful in serving God until his whole heart is in his calling. Unless we call all things as inferior in comparison to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ and doing His service, we will never fulfill our joyful destiny in God's will for our lives. No one who has reservations about following Jesus can truly be His disciple. It is also impossible to be a co-worker with Jesus 
when we are trying to serve two masters, when we realize how much it costs, the self-denial and the pain for Jesus to save us, and that He has always had us on His mind, and this was done for you and for me, that He not only recently took notice of us, but He has known us all along, and that He knows everything about us. And in spite of all this, He is also calling us, just like He called Matthew, to come and follow Him. And as we respond and learn of Him, the self-sacrifice that was seen in the life of Jesus will also be seen in our positive response to His call to follow Him. With gratitude, we will also gladly follow Jesus wherever the leading of God will take us. Based on the existence of the gospel written by Matthew, we imagine that he also forsook all and from his old life, he only took with him his writing tools. The next stop for Jesus after calling Matthew to be a disciple was a dinner party at Matthew's house. As already mentioned, the call of Matthew to be one of Jesus' disciples greatly excited the prejudices of the people, especially the leaders. For a religious leader to choose a publican as one of his inner circle was a great offense to the religious, social, and national customs. The Pharisees, who were becoming more and more hostile towards Jesus, took advantage of this fact, and by appealing to the prejudices of the people, they hoped to turn the current of popular feeling against Jesus. Through the call of Matthew to discipleship, hope sprang up among the other publicans, and a widespread interest was created amongst them and also other people of ill repute. And their hearts were being drawn towards this divine teacher. And in the joy of this new discipleship, Matthew desired to bring his former associates into contact with Jesus. So accordingly, he made a feast at his own house and called together his relatives and his friends and other associates. Not only were other publicans included, but many others who had bad reputations came to this feast as well. The entertainment was given in honor of Jesus, and he did not hesitate to accept Matthew's hospitality. Jesus was very much aware that the call of Matthew and his attendance at the feast at Matthew's house would give offense to the Pharisees. Furthermore, he knew that it would also compromise him in the eyes of the people. But Jesus was not influenced by the judgmental attitudes of the elite or the prejudicial social conventions of humanity. With Jesus, social distinction meant nothing. What appealed to his heart the most was a soul thirsting for the water of life. Jesus sat as an honored guest at the table of the publicans. By his sympathy, social kindness and respect, Jesus showed recognition for the dignity of all humanity. With such genuine interest and respect shown to them, they longed to become worthy of his confidence. Their hearts were thirsty, and his words blessed and satisfied their heart-yearning desires. His words awoke new impulses within them. The possibility of a new life was open to these outcasts of society, and a new living hope was kindled within them. Now it seemed that not only the guests, but also the critics showed up at this feast. Since the place was packed with obvious sinners, and particularly tax collectors, 
certain Pharisees confronted Jesus' disciples with the following question in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? This question reveals Matthew's reputation as well as an apparent reluctance on the Pharisees to confront Jesus directly. But although the Pharisees thought so highly of themselves, they were really in a worse condition than the ones they despised. The publicans were less bigoted and self-sufficient and therefore were more open to the influence of gospel truth. Although this question was addressed to the disciples, they couldn't or didn't reply. Jesus replied to the question of these accusers as follows in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, where he says to them, Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. By this simple quote from the Old Testament in Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, Jesus showed that while they claimed to be the expounders of the word of God, they were totally ignorant of its spirit or real intent. The Pharisees were silenced for a time, but their hearts were unchanged. This exchange only made them more determined in their hostile opposition towards God and His Son. These antagonists next sought out the disciples of John the Baptist and tried to set them against Jesus. These Pharisees had not accepted the mission of John the Baptist. They had mockingly pointed to his self-denying life, his simple habits, his primitive clothes, and had declared him a fanatic. Because he denounced the hypocrisy, they had resisted his words and had tried to stir up the people against him. The Spirit of God had moved upon the hearts of these scoffers and had convicted them of sin. They had, however, rejected the Word of God through this prophet and had declared that John was possessed of a devil. Now, when Jesus came mingling with the people, eating and drinking at their tables, they accused him of being a glutton and a wine-bibber. The very ones who made this charge were themselves guilty of gluttony. Their accusations were nothing less than the work of the devil. Just as God is misrepresented by Satan and Satan tries to clothe God with his evil attributes, so the Lord's messengers are also attacked and their testimony is falsified and misrepresented by wicked men. For these accusers, Jesus had an immediate answer that accomplished a number of purposes in a single statement. We read in Matthew chapter 9 from verse 12 and 13, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus here clearly stated his mission. He came to call sinners. Jesus was offering an invitation to anyone who was willing to acknowledge their sinfulness, and that invitation is even open still today. We who are under conviction and acknowledge our sin can claim the call of Jesus and respond to Him. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 37, And he who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. When Jesus rebuked the judgmental attitudes of these critics by referring to Hosea 6, verse 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, he also offered his hearers a subtle clue about his identity. Jesus, who was God manifest in human flesh, was demonstrating an attribute of his character, the attribute of mercy. 
Jesus had very different values and priorities compared to the Pharisees when it came to sinful people. They were the object of his mission and his love. Matthew never went back to his old job. The extent of Matthew's conversion can in some ways be measured by the fact that this prodigal son from Israel, who had cooperated with the enemies of Judah as a tax agent, became the author of one of the Gospels. His Gospel is filled with notes of highlights designed to clarify from the descendants of Abraham that their Messiah had come. One of the persistent ancient traditions about Matthew is that he was the only gospel author to write his account of Jesus' life also in Aramaic. Given Matthew's passion to reach Israelites with the good news about their Messiah, we shouldn't be surprised to discover various traditions about Matthew's ministry among the widely scattered communities of Jews throughout the Roman Empire. As an itinerant missionary, it's quite possible that Matthew visited many locations. Tradition tells us that Matthew's apostolic assignment was to Ethiopia. In ancient times, that name was used for two locations, the familiar African one as well as an area of Persia. Scholarly consensus has leaned towards placing Matthew in the African Ethiopia, where they say he was beheaded while carrying out Jesus' commission to reach the world. Next, we move our attention to Matthew's brother, known as James the Less or James the Lesser. When the stones rained down on him, we do not know what he said, but he had good examples to follow. The legacy of his death remains with us even today. Among the three people known as James in the New Testament, James, the son of Alphaeus or James the Less, has the smallest profile. He received no credit for a single question or comment or action during his years with Jesus. He was simply one of the 12 disciples. This James never stood out for ridicule or praise. James the son of Zebedee, or James the Great, was one of the famous sons of thunder among the disciples. James the son of Joseph and the half-brother of Jesus eventually took a significant leadership role in the church of Jerusalem. But James the son of Alphaeus lived in the background of the story. It seems like this James was a humble, unassuming character and by nature more of an introvert than many of the other disciples. Jesus was fully aware of this when he called this James to follow him. It goes to show that God wants to use and uses all types of people and personalities in his service to reach people that others may not be able to reach. Jesus calls background people to do the work that others can't do. If God can use a quiet, unassuming person like James and call him to be part of his great ministry, God can certainly use you regardless of your social makeup and personality. At some point, tradition tells us that the apostles assigned themselves certain areas of the world as destinations for outreach. Syria was possibly also an appointment of James the Less. During the early persecutions of Christians in Jerusalem, one of the popular escape destinations was Damascus in southern Syria. So much so that when Saul began to run out of believers to persecute in Jerusalem, he set his sights on Damascus where there was a good concentration of Christians that he could target and return to Jerusalem for trial and execution. Fortunately, God had other plans for Saul and the believers of Damascus. 
Those who had been targeted for suffering in Damascus ended up giving shelter to the very same Saul following his confrontation with Jesus on the road to their city. In Jerusalem, persecution was creating what sheer obedience had not accomplished. Eventually, Paul's bold example and the successes of those like Peter and Philip, who had been drawn out of Jerusalem on specific missions, began to overcome inertia. Christ's final words, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, as we read in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, were coming true one way or another. James's mission in Syria was met by three audiences. Transplanted believers such as Ananias, who would have probably welcomed someone with apostolic credentials, or transplanted Jews who would suspect James as a troublemaker, or the wider mixed culture typical of territory on a major trading route. This account has the Jews in Syria rejecting James' preaching and then stoning him to death. Another account of James' martyrdom was him in Jerusalem during the time when Festus, the governor of Judea, died. After Festus' death, Caesar Nero replaced him with a new governor called Albinus. About the same time as the death of Festus, a new high priest called Ananus was appointed to replace the former high priest called Joseph. It was after Festus' death and before the arrival of his replacement, Albinus, that the new high priest decided to pressure James the less to deny that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God. Ananus took advantage of the lapse in leadership at the end of Festus' reign. This was similar to the circumstances when, at the end of Pilate's reign over Judea, the Jews took advantage of the absence of Roman leadership and stoned Stephen, the deacon, to death. The Jewish high priest asked James to stand on the temple wall and speak against Jesus to the crowd which was gathered in preparation for the Passover. James instead spoke in favor of Jesus as the Messiah and that he was in fact the Son of God. Many heard him and many were converted. So because James spoke contrary to the high priest's directives, the religious leaders threw him down from the temple wall. Because this did not kill him as they had hoped, they began to stone him. Still, he did not die from the stoning. So a man took a fuller's club, this is a club that is used to beat out clothing, and clubbed him to death with it. James contributed to an eastern expansion of the gospel that eventually left a lasting arm of the church on the distant end of the arch trade route that connected Jerusalem and Damascus on the west to ancient Iraq on the east. The gospel traveled even farther east into India, pushing towards the ends of the earth. On review of the martyrdom of Matthew, Levi and James, his brother, we are shown that God does not respect rank, caste, pedigree or your sinful past. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance. He is calling you and he's calling me. How would you respond to him today? Dear listener, thank you for joining me on Souls Under the Altar. I look forward to your company here again next time. Until then, may God be with you.
Thank you for joining us on Souls Under the Altar. If you'd like more information about today's program or if you have any questions, please contact 3ABN Australia Radio by phoning 0249733456 or you can send an email to radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. You can also contact us on our 3ABN Australia Radio Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you.